Hello, everybody. <laughs> this is CB Bowman Live. And we are coming to you about 30 minutes late, and I apologize, but we had such troubles using StreamYard today. Oh my gosh. So I don't think it works in Firefox anymore. I think we have to install Chrome. At any rate, I'm so glad to be here. And if you missed any part of this, or if you have to leave early, remember, we are on your favorite platform. So by probably within a day or so, we'll be on Apple, Stitches, Amazon. You can hear the entire event. And don't forget to leave your comments. We love that. And of course, of course, it'll be on LinkedIn. So please tune in and leave your comments. I want to hear from you today. Okay, so what's my secret for today? You know, I always have a secret. My secret for today is our guest for today, Teresa, was my lifeline when I had COVID. We were introduced by a mutual friend. Of course, you probably know her, Maya Hung Chang. If you don't know her, you have to know about her books. So please go to LinkedIn. Uh, I think her, her latest book is called Saving Faith or Saving Face. Which Saving is, Face. Saving, Saving Faith. Faith. It's a very um, Asian um, euphemism. Yeah. And it talks about how when we make a mistake, how we can admit to it, right. go in and save the relationship. Yes. So it's a must read. You yes. know, my dyslexia, I get confused with words sometimes, faith right. and face. Yes. Saving Face by Maya Hung Chang. Anyway, when I had COVID, I was going crazy. I, I, I couldn't understand all the psychological things, the physical things that were going on. And she said, why don't you talk to my friend, Teresa, who's been through it. And I said, absolutely. And Teresa was kind enough to share her adventures with COVID. Yes. And you know what? I seem like a wimp compared to her yep. because she, oh my God, she really saved me. So I want to introduce Teresa because Teresa is CEO of Walden Family Services. And we have really an exciting and serious Thing to talk about, especially given right now the war. Yes. Right? So without further ado, let me introduce Teresa. Teresa, please introduce yourself. Thank you, CB. And even though we had to meet under very, very difficult circumstances, I'm so glad that Maya made that introduction because getting to know you has been such an important part of my life. And I, I think that COVID has taught us all some lessons, some very difficult lessons, but I think that even in every difficult time, there are lessons to be learned. And even as you mentioned now, we're still continuing to go through difficult times, both here and across the globe. Um, and it, it, it's up to us to find the lessons and um, how to get through these difficult times together, because you can't do it alone, as I learned during COVID. And that's why I was so happy to be able to reach out to you 
um, because I had people that I could fall back on for support. And that's so, so important. So, um, but yes, I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, the reason I knew um, so well, uh, the, the title of Maya's book, of course, besides being one of the first people to read it, is, um, is because I myself, um, like Maya, was born in Asia. I was born in Japan. Um, though I was raised um, primarily in San Diego, California, and have not looked back. I actually consider um, San Diego, California my home now, and I love it here. It's uh, 80 degrees today. So as you can imagine, um, there's a lot to love about uh, San Diego and California in particular. Um, I attended uh, UC San Diego, and I uh, majored in um, communications and minored in sociology and political science. And immediately after graduating, I entered uh, into um, public relations and advertising. And actually, that's where I met Maya a long time ago. I'm not going to tell you when, but it was a very, very long time ago, because as you know, Maya is a public relations and communications expert. No, um, I did not know that. Oh, she is actually. She has degrees from some of the best um, universities in the world and the country in that um, field. In fact, I believe her oldest son, Tyler, is also um, pursuing communications as well. So that's how Maya and I got to know each other from my time at UCSD and both of us being activists in the Asian Pacific Islander community. Um, yeah, that a secret from no wonder why her books hit the New York Times bestseller list. Absolutely. Yeah, oh absolutely. So, she, yeah, so she was a few years older than me. And so I really learned a lot from her when I was a student at UCSD. So um, and in throughout life. And so we've actually um, since an early age, we've have been best friends since then. And, you know, um, we're each other's weddings and for the birth of each other's children and so forth. And then, as I mentioned, activists in the um, Asian Pacific Islander community. So um, that's why I really, really enjoyed her books. And so I started off in San Diego in the advertising and PR industry um, right after college. And it was a very exciting time. Um, I got to work on some wonderful accounts like the rollout of the Got Milk campaign. No um, way. Yeah, That's yeah. Favorites. Yeah, absolutely. Who were you, who were you working for then? Uh, you know, I was working for um, different organizations. At that time, it was a, a firm that I believe is still here um, called NST. I believe they're still here in San Diego. Actually, okay. I worked for a couple of different organizations here in um, San Diego, um, agencies here in San Diego. And in fact, um, Maya and I um, started an agency of our own. Um, no. Yeah, actually targeting the Asian Pacific Islander community. So we had some various accounts as well. Um, so we were both in the industry um, for a, I was in probably five or six years here in San Diego. Um, but I left, um, there was just a, a lot, I loved what I did, but it was just um, something that I didn't, couldn't see myself doing for the rest of my life because you know you don't always get to pick and choose your clients, That's but you, right. you, have, you don't. And you have to sell the products or the images or the people regardless if you believe in them or not. Yes. Um, and that's really, really hard for me. I have a really hard time. I, I don't have a poker face. So it's so I'm going to tell you, I'm going to interrupt you and tell you a funny story. Yeah. When I was younger and I was job searching. I received an offer from Philip Morris. Oh, and uh, I was in marketing then. And I said, you know what? 
values wise, I just can't work for a cigarette company. Yeah, I and hear I, you. You know, I turned down the offer and then I received an offer from Kraft Foods. And I said, I can get behind this because I'm yeah. a food. And by the way, we have to go back to talking about food in Japan, which was my I was there. Oh my God. The best was going downstairs in the stores, in the like clothing stores. In the department stores, the basements are all full of food courts. Oh, oh, can we talk? Exactly. So you get to shop and eat at the same time. You could spend the entire day because it's multiple levels for everything you would ever need to buy. And then you either start or end or sometimes both in the basement and eat. Oh, my, the food. And, you know, I know I'm sounding very basic, but the udon soup. Oh, udon. Uh huh. Udon. Yes. I can't find anything like it in the United States. And I've tried going to the stores and buying my own and trying to do it. There's just, oh, I could just go back and dream in my head. (laughs) And I think the best udon I've ever had is actually at a train station, believe it or not. You know, it's those little places, a hole in the wall that you don't think about, you know, and um the little place, the little place on the side of the road that only doesn't have any place to sit, just an open window and you eat at yes. the counter. Yes. Oh, God. You want yes. me? I'm feeling like I need to get back on the plane and get over there just to eat. <laughs> and I have to tell you, the, the funny thing about Maya and I, and we used to travel a lot prior to having kids, but then also when we were kids, but all of our meals were planned around food. I mean, literally, we picked places where we could go, where we could eat. And that's still true to this day with my family, um, is planning our meals around where we where we, where we we can get good food. I'm very food-centric. In my my yeah. entire family is very, very food-centric. And that's just, just something about our culture. I think that's even the way um, we say our love you to our family members, is have you eaten? That's just a very standard. Yes. I don't think I've ever heard my parents, to be honest with you, for very few times have my parents actually said the words to me, um, I love you. But when you walk in the door, have you eaten? And then they pack you up like so much food. So, so much food. Yeah. I love that analogy because, you know, I'm married to an Italian chef. Oh, oh. Uh-huh. My God, I have put on so much weight since being married to him. And I, every every minute and every pound, right? <laughs> well, so <laughs> this is a sidebar audience. I have to tell you, so I'm so fortunate. I get breakfast in bed every day, right? <laughs> and so what he does is he gives me the food and then he hands me the silverware and then he'll stand there and he'll watch me take my first bite. Yeah. To see the expression. Yeah, I, I thought about that for a long time before I realized what he was doing. And if my expression is good, he gets this smile on his yeah. face. Yeah. So I think it might be the same in Italian cultures. I probably, probably. I love you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's. I think that's true. Also, yeah. Yeah. So help me. Thank you for helping me understand that. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's food is love in our culture. Food is love. My husband also. He's a fabulous cook. He makes. Um, I make the Japanese food. He makes the Indonesian and the Chinese food, and and you know everything is planned around um, cooking. And even though our kids don't live in the home anymore, it's like oh okay, we're gonna cook, but 
either we can drop it off to them or they're going to come pick it up. And if we can't see them anytime in the near future, we might as well not cook because if you can't share it with you, you know, your family, what's, what's the purpose of cooking? So food well, is definitely love. I have a solution. I'm in Colorado. It's not that far from San Diego. <laughs> be dropping by there one day yes absolutely please please do and then, please do absolutely this is why we settled in um california because we have so much we have much more access to our cultural foods um in california and so when my husband and i have traveled and we traveled a lot to look you know at other places where we could retire and every time we look the first thing we look at is where can we get our food and if we can't we're like oh yeah i think we're gonna stick in california yeah, you know, Colorado is not the food capital, but it is for health and hiking. Yes, and it's beautiful. Fish, surprisingly fishing and golf oh, and everything else. But the food here, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, back to my story. So um, I was offered this position at Philip Morris. I said no because of the cigarettes. And so I received an offer from Kraft Foods. Lo and behold, years later, who purchases Kraft Foods? Oh, Laura, cigarettes. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, my God. I was in so much trouble because you would go to a meeting and people were sitting there smoking away because at yeah. that time they allowed it. And I just thought, okay, I need to look for a new job now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that really, really matters. So that's that's why I left the industry. Um, just because, as I said, you don't get to pick and choose your clients. And right. I, yeah, and I don't have a poker face. And I think people know when I like or don't like something. Unfortunately, I just have no ability to hide it. So <laughs> yeah, and you know that's not good in a PR um, person at all, <laughs> at all. So it was not a good fit for me. Um, so believe it or not, I transitioned into politics and people are like, wait, what? what? <laughs> politics? But I really, I really found it to be much more welcoming and affirming, particularly in San Diego. I think politics, you know, everyone says politics is local and it really is. And, you know, I, I worked um, in representing the Asian Pacific Islander community and my colleagues, you know, I had colleagues that represented the LGBT community, the black community, the Latino community. And, you know, we worked really hard to make sure that, um, and there was uh, people who represented women and children. I got to fit into that role um, towards the end. And we worked really hard to make sure those community voices were heard and uplifted and that their concerns were being met and that when there were contracts given out by the city or any business businesses or conventions or events that came to the city, for instance, the Super Bowl, when we were able to bring the Super Bowl to the city of San Diego, we had workshops for minority business enterprise and women-owned enterprises saying, and we pulled in the folks from the Super Bowl and said, this is how... Um, we do business here in San Diego. We want to make sure that they have access to contracts as well. Um, so I really felt that, um, at least at the level that I worked for and the person that I worked for, really wanted to make a difference in our community. Um, and it had more of an impact. And, and I think that's uh, in part because I worked for a woman who was a, a single mom and she had faced a lot of adversity in her career. Um, so... She was much more supportive at understanding other people who had faced a lot of adversity. 
Um, and it was really important to me, the work that we did. I, I, I wasn't able to stay in it beyond um, her term because when I had my own young children, you know, those hours in politics, it's, you know, it's crazy but, hours, right? But wait, Teresa, I, I, let's go back a little bit. Yeah. And God, you have such a wealthy background. Oh, my God. All right. First, tell me, how did you go from PR to politics? I can understand politics really needing PR, but yeah. how did you make the transition? What was the what was the key? Um, volunteerism. As I mentioned, I had been a community activist in the right. Pacific Islander community since my early days at UCSD. I was um, involved in the Asian Pacific Islander Student Alliance. I was an officer right. and we did a lot of outreach campaigns um, all across um, San Diego. And then I started volunteering on political campaigns um, for causes that were really important to me. So um, when the time came and they were looking for somebody to represent the Asian Pacific Islander community, someone put my name forward and then they called me for an interview. And of, of course I jumped at the chance um, because as I mentioned, I was not happy in the um, advertising and PR world at all, um, representing some of the clients and also not just the clients, but um, advertising and PR, in, as you know, probably it, it was very, very cutthroat. Oh um, yes. Very cutthroat, yeah. very competitive. And, um, and I just didn't like that uh, feeling. It was not very conducive to um, feeling supported and so forth. And, and really at that time, um, it was really not conducive and supportive to young women at all. A lot of misogyny in the field, a lot of misogyny. Um, and, um, you know, and, and this was before me too, and people didn't feel comfortable saying anything about that yeah, yeah. at all. Um, uh, so, the women that were in the field were cutthroat in themselves. Absolutely. Oh my God. You absolutely get in the back as quick as somebody could smile at you. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And not just misogyny, but I, I frankly saw a lot of, um, prejudice in the field. Um, oh, yes, of course. I, yeah, a lot of prejudice. Um, yeah, it was a big money-making field. So, right, of course. Right. Yeah, and and you know, and and the words, the hateful words that I heard on a you know anti-LGBT um, remarks about you know racial minorities, they're mostly directed at competitors and so forth, not within your own organization. But still, it's really hard to to yeah. hear those kinds of things every day, and it it just didn't really fit with my personality at all. And um, then it's surprising because I came from the arts, right? Oh, uh -huh. um, I was an interior designer in my first career. And that you had such unity of race and um, LBGTQ yes. community. And so when I went into corporate America, I saw, wow, what a difference, right? Yeah. But I thought at least in the, because I was in marketing, the advertising space, because we were hiring the marketing, that it would be reminiscent of my experience in the arts. And it was not. Yeah. It yeah. was quite frankly, a hellhole. Right. Yeah. 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 Very cutthroat, very yeah. cutthroat, very competitive yeah. and just not something in which I could thrive. And I, and I knew that. So it was really easy for me to make the jump, you know, and of course, you know, financially you, you take the hit of course, uh, to go work in politics. But um, at least I felt um, better about what I was doing every day. I felt like I was making a difference when citizens would call me and they would have problems and to be able to resolve those problems. 
just made me feel really good. Um, and then in particular, I started working at the um, at the end on issues that related to women and children because I, I was becoming a mom myself. Sure. And then so that became really important to me. Um, so I, I felt much better about um, the difference that we were making in the world. And, and I felt better. You know, it's not that politics... Um, isn't competitive. It is obviously, particularly when you're running um, campaigns. Right. But but when you're not running a campaign on the day to day, at least at that time. So this was in the '90s. Um, I'm sure it's very different now. I mean, I, I've been watching politics, and I can't tell you how glad that I left the um, industry when I did. I can't tell you. Um, yes. But I didn't leave because of that. yeah, that's not why I left. I left feeling really good about where I left it. You know, I'm still really great friends with the the person who was my boss at that time, and um, I still have a lot of great friends um, from my days there. And um, so I didn't leave at that time. I left because uh, I had two young kids, and that I just couldn't keep up with that demanding um, schedule, particularly because my youngest son has some really serious health issues. And so that was that had to be my priority. Sure. Um, yeah. So I left, but really, really happy about where I was. And then I started volunteering again because I love to volunteer. I mean, that's something that I've been doing since I was in middle school. And um, so I think overall, my calling was probably meant to be in the nonprofit world. And I just didn't know it because you think, oh, I got to go to college. I have to pick this career that's going to make me a lot of money and I'm going to mm -hmm. raise I'm going to rise to the top and I'm going to have this prestige, you know, prestigiousness and so forth. And that yes. was kind of, you know, ingrained in me. But I was just so unhappy that it, it wasn't worth the amount of money and the stress and so forth, especially if you can't sleep at night or especially mm -hmm. if you can't look at yourself in the mirror and yes. be proud about what you're doing. So um, my best friend at that time, who is still my best friend to this day, um, was volunteering at our local um, children's emergency center. And that is where it's a 24 hour, seven day a week center. When children are removed from their home for abuse or neglect, they're brought to this emergency shelter. And she was volunteering there and, and talking to me about it and about volunteering there. And, and she was holding a toy drive. Um, for the um, for the kiddos for Christmas. And I said, oh, yeah, I want to help with that. You know, that's something that I can do. And my kids were at school at that time. So I had more free time on my hands. And I think the, the big aha moment for me was um, I took my kids to their favorite store, which was at the time the Disney store. Oh. Yeah, the Disney What's store. What's love? Right, exactly. And they were upset. It's like the kids' version of Costco, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. We could literally go spend all day at the Disney store, at the mall. That was yeah. like a, a day for us. And I took them and um, I told them, I said, hey, there are little boys living at this place, same age as you, and they don't have any parents. And they're going to be living in this place by themselves at Christmas, and they have no toys to play with. So I want you to pick out something for them. And I thought, oh, my very privileged boys are going to pick out something for them, but they're going to pick out something even better for themselves, right? Because what, you know, little kids don't go into Disney store and say, I want this and this and this. And, you know, they ran up and I'm going to cry because it still brings tears to my eyes. And they picked out the best Woody and Buzz Lightyear that they could find because those were their favorites. And then they brought these up. And then they both said, and my oldest said to me, mama, can I buy him two toys? 
never even thought about asking for toys for themselves. I said, sure, absolutely. So I let them pick a bunch of toys, you know, and we, we brought them home and we wrapped them and they were, they wanted to hear more about these kids. Why don't they have parents? Why don't they live at home? And that was my aha moment that here I had an opportunity to teach my kids, my very, very privileged kids who have a beautiful home, a beautiful life, everything you could ever want, that there are people out there just like them who don't have it. And it has nothing to do with my kids being smarter or better or anything. It's basically the circumstances of their birth. Yeah, absolutely. So when the opportunity came to work um, in this field, I jumped at the chance. I okay, absolutely hold on, Teresa. Hold on. Yes. How, how old were your children when this happened? They were, my oldest one was in kindergarten and my youngest one was in his last year in preschool. So I would say um, like four and five, four and five years old. Yeah. So for yeah. them to walk into a place and, and to understand the concept, um, because we we're just such a like a tight knit family. They grew up, my parents lived literally, I think 10 houses down from me. So their concept of family is like, your family's always around. You're always either at your grandparents' home or your grandparents are at your home and, you know, meals are shared together. And for them to, uh, to figure out at such an early age that there are children who don't have that, I think, you know, yeah. It's, it's so beautiful because I now know you're the third parents that have raised their children to give at Christmas. Yeah. Versus getting at Christmas. And to me, that's so important. I never had my own children. So I made it a plan every Christmas for the past 30 years. I do Toys for Tots. Oh, very good. And that's good. the greatest time of the year for me. Right. It, it literally brings me back to childhood. Yeah. Because I remember our last Christmas as a family, as still believing in Santa Claus, which we know he exists. Mm -hmm. I woke up and the family room, you couldn't move. It was so filled with gifts. And I remember that feeling, and I always want a child to have that feeling. Yes. And when yes. I met my husband on the third date, I believe it was, he asked me out and I said, I'm sorry, but I have to go shopping for toys. And I know he, I know he thought I was crazy, right? <laughs> and he said, for toys? What kind of toys are you talking about? I said, for children. And he said, but I thought you don't have any children. I said, I don't. I said, but at Christmas time, I'm Mrs. Claus. Oh, yeah. And he went, we went to Sam's and he became so involved in helping me select toys. I thought, this is a man I'm going to marry. That's a good man. Absolutely. We passed that test with flying colors. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Philanthropy, giving back to the community, 
um, helping those who are by, by through no fault of their own are born in difficult circumstances. I mean, yes. I think that is something that everyone should be doing. And now that I, I get to do that, I've been able to do that for 20 years for a living. It's, it's just amazing. It absolutely is amazing. And it, and it's become a mantra in our family. And it, it was not just at Christmas. My boys did the same thing for their birthday. They always, they kept one <laughs> gift for their birthday and they gave all of their other gifts to the kids um, in the shelter. And um, yeah, and they volunteered for every toy drive, every um, Halloween costume drive, every backpack drive. They still to this day are philanthropic and volunteer at other opportunities, as many as possible. They also do other things with me. You know, we march in pride. Um, you know, they marched with me at Black Lives Matters. We've realized early on that, you know, we can affect change in this world. One person can yes. make a difference in the life of a child. Yes. Um, and so that's that's been something that we've, we've been doing for a um, since my kids were little. And I know it's something that they're going to do um, for the rest of their lives. Um, Kudos to you. Kudos. Yeah. Well, no, kudos to the organization working in a field that allowed me um, to to um, to role model this for my children, but also to be able to feel really good about what I do, to be able to sleep peacefully at night um, mm -hmm. and to know that we're making a difference. And so, you know, and to to anybody I say out there, you know, if you're not in the career that you want to be, don't worry about it. I was much older when I got into the career that I'm in now. I, I found my calling much older in life. Me too. Uh, yeah, Me too. right. Yeah. And, and it had nothing to do with my degree or anything. But, you know, it was it, so if you have a passion or if you have a hobby and you think that's something you want to pursue, go out and volunteer or just try. You know, you're never too old. Just try it, you know. I, and, I love yeah. what you're saying. I was just interviewed by Isabella Lunding, and my platform is courage. Mm -hmm. right. it, it's not about, because I looked at it, and I came into this accidentally last year um, when I was asked to speak at an event on courage. And I said, what, are you kidding me? I, I don't know anything about it. I Ask me about DEI asked me about coaching. What do I know about courage? And and I was told you're the most courageous woman that we know. Yes. And so I sat down at my computer and I started to write my keynote. And all of a sudden my fingers were like, <laughs> and I realized that was my calling. And it's not about talking about courage in an esoteric manner. It's actually teaching people how to implement courage. Right. The, the things that your children have learned from you, this caring about others, that's courage. Because I am sure in this day and age, they could be ridiculed. What are you, what are you giving away stuff for? You know? Yeah. And so courage is not this big mammoth thing. It's the little things that we do. Right. That equal change. Yeah. It's making a difference in somebody's life. And so I want to know how you decided to open Walden and tell us what it's about. And I am like so honored. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I have to say I didn't open um, Walden. I've been here for 20 years and Walden is uh, 45 years old. Um, 
but um, we are a foster care adoption prevention and housing nonprofit organization that operates all throughout Southern California. We serve children from newborn all the way up to 24. As I mentioned, their children through no fault of their own have ended up in the system somehow. And what we want to do is to make sure that they have all the tools that they need so that they can become successful adults and break the cycle of child abuse, neglect, poverty, et cetera. So that if and when they choose to be parents, they know that they have the skills that they need to um, raise them in a much better way than, the, than they were raised, in a much better situation than they found themselves in that they were as children. So up to age 20? 24. 24. Right. Tell yeah. me what you do. You might hear London adding to the conversation, my four-legged uh, little child who bosses us around. But um, getting back to this, tell me what is it that you can offer the 20-year-olds? 20 20 do they not feel like they know it all? That I mean, how do you help them? Well, I have to say, at first, many 20-year-olds, and, and I'm speaking from experience as the mom of two early 20-year-old boys, <laughs> feel like that they do know it all. Can I yes. right? They At first, many of them do. But I have found that the ones who are open-minded and come to us and really put themselves forward into our programs and graduate, they come back to us and thank us for um, all of the things that we've been able to teach them. Because really, all the research shows um, that young people, particularly young men, and, and I know I have two of them, I have a 22-year-old and 24-year-old, you know, that their brains aren't fully developed in, until they're 26. So, you know, my kids still call me and ask me for assistance and questions and, and you know, life lessons. Um, but these kids don't have a lot of people that they can call. So what we do is um, we provide them with housing, the ability to enroll in some type of um, education, whether it be vocational, college, et cetera. We provide them with employment opportunity and insistence, how to um, build a resume, how to um, prepare for interviews, how to dress appropriately, link them to job opportunities, uh, and teach them basic life skills, such as how to manage your finances, how to cook, how to clean your home, all of the things that unfortunately that they weren't taught because they weren't able to live in a two family home, um, you know, to live with parents at all. Like my kids were unfortunate um, to live in a two family home. So um, so though those skills are really, really important because many of the children, the older youth that we serve come to us either from um, some of them come to us from homelessness. Some of them. Yes. Some of them come to us from incarceration. Some of them have been sex trafficked. Some of them have aged out of um, foster youth at the age of 18, and they've just been couch surfing. Many of them don't have their GED, et cetera. But by the time that they graduate from our program, they're able to um, save up some funding, which we're able to match. They're able to get their GED and many times to further advance their education. They're able to get job experience, and they're able to learn how to live on their own out in the community. They set goals for themselves when they enter our program, and we work with them daily so that when they graduate from the program three years later, that they meet their own goals that they set for themselves. So tell me about the program. Do, well, first of all, 
if you're homeless, how do you find out about Walden? Uh, a lot of them will look for help. You know, either they'll reach out um, to a homeless shelter. They might have a contact with a former social worker. It could be a probation officer. Um, there are a number of ways, but um, they go through the county in which they grew up. So, you know, mm -hmm. if they grew up in L.A. County, they contact L.A. County um, or one of the resource organizations will put them um, to one. They can call 211. Um, just 211 from any place that they're at in Southern California and be connected to the county in which they're located. And the county will put them through not just in touch with Walden, but a variety of different opportunities that are out there for youth of all ages. What gives them the impetus to make the call to you or to their county? What gives them, because, you know, I don't know much about this. You're living on the streets. Yeah. What makes you, what triggers you to say, I've had it. I want to make a change. I think desperation, honestly, really desperation. It's, it's really not. Walden has participated. We've volunteered in the homeless count in various parts of Southern California in the past. And it's a really, really eye-opening um, experience to see so many youth who are out on the streets, the majority of which are um, actually LGBT youth, and they're out on the streets because they've been kicked out of their homes. Um, but some are former foster youth who aged out and had no place else to go because they weren't provided um, with opportunities at the age of 18. So I think desperation. Honestly, um, these kids don't want to be out on the street. It's really hard out there. You have to keep. You can't sleep with two eyes closed. You know, it's it's dangerous. So, um, but a lot of them also come to us from referrals, as I mentioned, um, through their probation officers, through their county social workers, et cetera. And um, they call us. Um, unfortunately, we have a, a waiting list in all of the counties that we're in, in um, Southern California. It's very, very difficult, particularly now during COVID. The, um, it's very hard for us to be able, we, we open the apartments for them. We, we lease the apartments, we furnish them, we supply all the food and all the sundry items, but the rents for apartments right now are, have skyrocketed. You know, whereas we used to be able to get um, decently priced studios or one bedrooms in, in safe areas of um, Southern California, it's, it's almost impossible now. So we have pretty long wait lists and it's, it's heartbreaking um, when these youth are calling us and saying, hey, I really need a place to stay and we can't open those apartments because we don't have the funding. Um, so I'm very fortunate to have a very supportive um, board of directors and a lot of donors and supporters who work really hard to make sure that we can have the funding and get as many youth off the wait list as possible because nobody who wants to be off the street should be on the street. You know, they all deserve an opportunity. As I said, they didn't choose the life. They did nothing wrong. They just happened to be born in different circumstances than my children. And, um, you know, life hasn't been fair to them. So it's us up to us to make sure that they have the opportunities, opportunities that they need to, to reach their goals and be successful in life. So I'm surprised because I would have thought that California is experiencing the great exit like New York and that places would be less expensive. To oh, my gosh. No, our, our rents have skyrocketed. 
absolutely skyrocketed um, in the last two years. So um, we're in Southern California. I can't speak to Northern California, but traditionally Northern California has always been more expensive. So in the last two years, we've and and the other thing that we're seeing is that you know a lot of what we would call naturally affordable apartments. Those are um, really old apartments with no amenities in, you know, not in the best um, areas of town. Um, those used to be places that um, we would be able to um, rent, but now developers are coming in and um, they're kicking us out. They refuse to renew our leases because they're completely redoing those apartments there. And now they're turning into luxury apartments. So the problem is that a lot of the apartments that we've been looking at leasing are um, now turning into luxury apartments. And we're the second largest provider of this program in Southern California. So we have leases all throughout Southern California, and we're seeing this in every region, even in parts of more affordable parts of Southern California, what we call Inland Empire, which is Riverside, San Bernardino, Temecula, even those rents are skyrocketing. And there's no, I know in New York, uh, many years ago, they passed a bill. Uh, if you're putting up a high rise luxury, you have to have a certain number of apartments that were available to lower income people. You don't have that in California. We do. We do have that specifically, too, in San Diego. You don't have to put the units necessarily in the um that building, they can get tax credits and those funds can be used by other organizations here in San Diego to build more affordable housing, but they're not building enough affordable housing for all the people who need it. So it's not just the former foster youth, but there are also, you know, working families, um, double yeah. income working families who are looking for affordable housing. It's a really hard time. I have to tell you, I mean, I was shocked myself when my oldest, he, he graduated recently and went to go look for an apartment. And you know, even with his master's degree and a very good job, finding affordable housing, um, he is now looking to, you know, to get multiple roommates um, when his lease comes up. Because finding affordable housing is an issue. If it's an issue for somebody with a master's degree, two parents who can help them. Can you imagine what it's like for a former foster youth? It's, it's really, really a difficult predicament that we're in. Yeah, I mean... I literally feel bad for the state of California. It, it's a very, very difficult time. On the one hand, you know, you read about this huge budget surplus that we have, um, and they have more money than they've ever had before. But on the other hand, people can't afford rent. They can't afford food. They can't afford transportation. So there's a huge dichotomy between the people who can take care of themselves you know, who, who are very privileged, like I said, to have, you know, a higher education, um, the support of um, family members. And then you have the, my clients um, who have no surrounding family members to support themselves and who are struggling to stay here. But they have to stay here. They have to be um, in uh, California to um, get the resources um, if that's where they grew up in foster care. It's very hard to transition out and, and, and get support. It's not impossible, but it is really hard. And a lot of foster youth don't know how to do that, too. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your program. So uh, a child comes in who's, let's just say, 20 years old. Um, day one, what happens? 
Well, we we try to get to them earlier than 20 because in California, there are two programs for former foster youth. So there's a program uh, for 18 to 21 year olds. And then there's another program for 21 to 24 year olds. So we believe that they need the full three years um, in our program in order to graduate successfully. So we will get to them hopefully at the age of 18, um, if at all possible. And then we will work with them right away if they don't have a GED to get them a GED. And then right away to get them some type of educational experience, whether it's vocational school. A lot of our youth go um, to become a certified nursing assistant, a dental assistant, um, cosmetology school, um, truck driving. You know, those are the kinds of things. And some of them will go to a community college. Our community college offers wonderful resources um, here in um, California. Uh, for former foster youth. And then some of them will go on to a four-year um, university, though, unfortunately, um, that's a very low percentage in the United States. Less than 3% of former foster youth graduate with a bachelor's degree within um, 12 years of exiting the system. But it, it's it's not um, impossible. We have um, many youth who've done it, and they've actually even gone to get their master's degree. So we make sure that they have the skills that they need so that they can be gainfully employed in the field in which they want to by the end of three years. And that's a very short time frame because I can tell you at 21, my kids weren't um, weren't self-sustaining at all. So but, but, but give me an example of the program. They come in, let's say at age 18. And then what happens next? We find them an apartment. We mm -hmm. um, fully, um, you know, as I said, stock the apartment. We enroll them in school and we start teaching them skills. We have um, skills either one-on-one. -on -one. We have a skills trainer that will work with them either one-on-one -on -one or in group sessions, such as, as I mentioned, how to um, work on your, how to open a bank account. That's one of the first things that we do. How to get your paycheck direct deposited, how to balance your checkbook, how to set up and pay your utilities, how to budget every month, those kinds of things. But then, and then we also teach them um, how to work on your resume, how to um, dress appropriately, how to interview, how to get along with other people. It's not just everyone that you grew up with in foster care, how to be a good neighbor in the apartment complex and you're living in. Yes, you're free and you're on your own at the age of 18. You've got your own apartment. That doesn't mean you can blast the music at all hours long or, you know, drop soda cans on the floor, et cetera. You know, teaching them those basic life skills. Um, and I, I always say that um, it's a little bit harder for these kids because I don't know if I live really close to a university and I see what a lot of the kids at the university do, including my own kids. I, I wouldn't walk into my own kids' places when they were at the university. Um, I didn't, I, I felt like I needed a hazmat. Um, <laughs> I literally moved them in, and then when they moved out, they were on their own. But 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 our our youth in our program, you we walk in, do spot checks unannounced, and see how clean it is, how organized it is. Do you have healthy food in your refrigerator? What's in your pantry? Um, so they are held to higher standards than my own kids are held to, and I remind my kids all the time about how lucky they have it in life. You know, you. So, but what about clothes? How do they how do they get clothes? Well, we have resources in the community that we link them to to help them with interview clothes and and all of those kinds of things. So we're very very re, uh, fortunate that we utilize we collaborate with different organizations um, to provide them with different um, resources that they might need in the community so they can get um, uh, 
work clothes. And then at the holidays, as I mentioned to you, we have a lot of donors who help give out holiday gifts and during the school year, backpacks and school supplies, all of the things um, that, uh, you know, are the extra things that really make the difference when our kids are going to um, school and to work. So they don't feel different from their peers because they shouldn't feel different. They did nothing wrong. So let me just, because what I'm trying to get to is how people who are listening can help, right? Yes. So other than to send money, which we know is mm -hmm. always welcome. But <clears throat> I think about it and I say to myself, I have literally an entire basement full of clothes that are business clothes that I no longer need because most of all my work now is by Zoom, right? right. <laughs> so I can have one pajamas below and just a nice top that I picked up at TJ Maxx. Right. Um, but the cost of shipping. The cost of shipping. Big. And also Walden doesn't have the capabilities to store them, to be honest with you. And that's why we link them with resources, other resources in the community that have those capabilities. Um, you know, because of COVID and our inability to hold fundraisers, um, one of the only things that we can do is um, to save funding is on our office space. So we have... Um, actually reduced our office size in some places and we'll probably continue to do so, especially as more of us are working remotely these days. So we don't have any storage room. So um, we um, work, there are different organizations that will have a day that say, we're going to be in your neighborhood and we're going to have work clothes come here on this day. So we send our youth to those or, you know, at the holidays, they will drop off um, gifts for our youth, et cetera. So Really, we're not the organization to donate those items to. We work with other resources, um, but there are some items that are always in demand, like our apartments. We're moving youth into our apartments on a regular basis. So we have a wish list um, on our website at waldenfamily.org of the things that we can use on a regular basis. Um, and then the things that we can't, um, there are other organizations that we can refer people to. But there, like I said, we have some great partners who we work with. So how does one find out about those partners? And let's just go back to the clothing example. Um, if people wanted to send, for example, St. John's suits, Ooh, but yeah. they know they're incredibly expensive to ship because you're talking about good yeah. material. Do these organizations work with them and, and suppose they're across the country and getting the clothes to them? You know, there's just so much waste that I see in the United yeah, States. Yeah, yeah. No, I would actually su suggest you find a local organization and, and give local because mm -hmm. there's environmental impacts as well, too. I mean, that's something that we always want to concern, uh, consider. Um, so I, I would say give local if you can. Um, but, you know, so like one of the organizations we work with here, um, I think their name is My Girlfriend's Closet, and they they get um, everything from our, our young youth all the way up to our 24-year-old youth, and they open kind of a retail boutique several times a year for our young women, you know, and there are other organizations who've given um, clothing for our young men, but definitely give local because we, we definitely have um, environmental impacts to consider. How does that affect the environment? With, with uh, the, the extra shipping and so forth. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. The fossil fuel, particularly. I, I, I drive an EV. <laughs> so okay. I, I okay. try to try to be environmentally conscious as, as much as possible. Now, let's go to the education part, because, you know, 
there are so many coaches that I know yes. that are throughout the United States that coach CEOs and the like. And I'm sure they would love to know how to support, you know, doing a Zoom presentation, a, a webinar or something like that to support uh, these youths. These yes how does that happen how does that take place zoom we do them on zoom now so we have presentations of all different kinds again a lot of the as i, me I mentioned all of our youth are all over southern california so we utilize zoom for all kinds of presentation whether it's financial management um, how to, to um, pay your utilities, bank accounts, how to apply for jobs, all of those kinds of things. So again, if anyone is interested in, in getting involved, uh, go to waldenfamily.org um, and we'd be happy to talk to them. And, and it wouldn't just be necessarily for our youth, but um, you know, I think helping with our staff as well. I think our staff, that might be something that our staff is interested. You met the amazing Dr. Darjane Graham Perez. Who, oh my God. Isn't she awesome? She's yes. a kick ass woman. I love she it. Is. I know she is. Yeah. Well, she is our director of people and culture, and she is always looking for opportunities to um, educate our um, staff as well. Um, she is in charge of health and wellness, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So if anybody has any interest in that, they can go on our website. But as you can imagine, this is a very, very hard field to work in. You hear a lot of very dark, sad stories about abuse and neglect. So yes. it's just important for our team members to take care of themselves as it is for us to take care of our youth. And if you don't wow. take care of yourself first, you know that old saying about put your own oxygen mask on first. Um, so I know, but, yeah. You know I would love if you or Darjane would send me a list of topics that okay. you would like coaches to speak about and who they should contact. I'll raise my hand to talk about courage. Um, yeah, my favorite subject. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I can even send you some interviews that I've already done on courage. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I would encourage is, this idea just struck me. Like the interview I'm doing with you, I have interviewed over 90 professionals that have incredible experiences and advice, and they're all available for free of charge. And so I would, you know, yes, yes, they can listen to them in chunks. The only thing I would ask, leave comments. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. That would be an amazing experience. It's almost like a master class. Right, right. Else. And a lot of people are talking about the books they've written or, you know, uh, presentations that they've done. And there's so much learning uh, in these video casts that I've done. I, I would be more than happy for uh, the children to look at them and to learn. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Particularly people I think the stories that resonate for them are those who've overcome huge obstacles like our youth have. That mm -hmm. to them, um, they need to hear that authenticity um, about people who've been in very similar situations to them and how they overcame it. Because sometimes the future can look really bleak uh, unless you hear about 
other people who've overcome. And that's why we hire a lot of people whenever possible with lived experience. So a lot of our peer mentors um, and our skills trainers, et cetera, have lived experience and they can talk to them and say, hey, I was where you were at, you know, and this is what I did. And I know it's really hard. And I don't, I know sometimes it doesn't seem like it's going to be worth the effort, but let me tell you in the long run, it is going to be worth the effort. So any of those types of stories um, would be really appreciative, you know, and we have a lot of people who've overcome, you know, domestic violence and et cetera. So people who have that kind of experience who can talk to our youth would be highly appreciated. Well, okay, so then let's put together a letter that I will be glad to send out to the members. Yeah. Uh, because I don't know their personal stories. I just know their successes now. Yeah. But I mean, I do know one person who uh, got through a lot because he actually caused the death of his fiance in oh. a car. So, yeah. you know, that's how do you get beyond that? Right. But other than that, I don't know a lot of life stories, but I right. am sure if we put together something that says, here's the person you can contact to talk about your life story and see if it'd be a value. We have uh, several members that are coaching the Honor Foundation uh, members, which are the um, Navy SEALs for the oh, wow. Yeah. As they re-enter. And so they have heard some hair-raising story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think there's an opportunity to get some good presentations and something that's out of the box. Yeah, you know, right. That they want to hear about. Right. So let's right. do that. Let's make yes, it. Yes, definitely. We'll work with Dr. Darshani to make that happen. I would love it. Just ask her to reach out to me and yeah. we we'll definitely make that happen. I yeah. love the idea. Yeah, inspiration. Now, what about the young children? What do you need for them? What can we do to help there? There are never enough um, foster and adoptive parents for our young children. Never enough. Um, and, you know, and it's not just for Walden. It's the case nationwide. It's really sad to see all of these children who are waiting for a family, you know, and, um, some of them wait their whole lives and that's why they come to us at 18 because they never found a family. And, and can you imagine growing up feeling like you're not wanted, that no one loves you? So first and foremost, yeah. And it, and it may not be you, but talk about it at your church or your temple or talk about it at your book club or any social or professional organization you belong to. And it, it may not just be at Walden. Nationwide, we need more foster and adoptive parents. We are at a crisis of children who are, are, are the future of our country, but they're growing up not feeling loved, wanted, and supported. So um, I don't think that people think about that on a daily basis. And um, that first and foremost is, is the, our biggest need. I have a final question for you. Why do you feel that so many Americans, when they go to adopt, they leave the country to adopt. And that leaves us empty handed for adoption opportunity for children to be adopted here in the United States. Why is that happening? And it's not new. It's been happening for years and years. Yeah, it, it breaks my heart. I think maybe they're afraid that, um, the child having family in the United States may be an obstacle for them. 
that mm -hmm. you know the that the, the having a family in the United States, the biological family, um, you know, the biological family of the child in the United States may be an obstacle for them, and that they might try and take the child back. Um, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I don't know. There are just so many children here in this country, or and also too. Um, but you know what? There are children in other countries as well. So everyone deserves to, to have a loving family. So I think that people just need to follow their heart and their calling. Um, but there are so many children here too. That's that's what I want to remind people. I mean, in Los Angeles alone, there are over seventy thousand children in foster care. Mm -hmm. It's more than any amount in across the, there, that's more than any amount that some states have. Some states don't even have that many. So um, if you can, um, again, like I said earlier, think local if you can, you know, look to your local organizations if you can, but, but most of all, you have to follow your heart and your calling. I mean, this is a lifelong decision and it's not easily made. And I would, you have to look internally and, and find that decision. Um, but there's always children who need love. What do you feel? I mean, I've heard things like it's too complicated to adopt in the United States. It takes too long. But yet I have friends that have adopted from Asia, from uh, all over the world. And it seems to me that it takes just as long. It but usually I, does. It usually takes about the same amount of um, time and effort. It really does. And again, I, I don't want to knock anybody who has adopted abroad because. No, again, no, no. I'm not yeah. saying that. I'm just yeah. trying. To but it, it definitely takes about the same amount of time um, and probably less resources. I, I think, though, that um, there are definitely some more rules when you adopt in the United States. You know, they look at things like your house and it, do you have your child safety items set in place before you bring your child home? You know, do you have your car seats and your safe cribs and those kinds of things? And maybe people are afraid about those rules. Do you, um, but we work very closely with the family to make sure that their house is ready when we do their home study. Um, to, to help them get it ready. And if they can't afford the items that, that they need to get their home ready, we have some very generous donors who will um, come in and help somebody. So we've had, because we want to keep sibling sets together and it's really hard, especially in Southern California, not many people can afford to take, you know, three or four children all at once. We have some wonderful donors who've set up an endowment for us and we use that funding so we can buy um, we can buy bunk beds, we can buy cribs, we could buy car seats for families who want to keep sibling sets together and really think that it's unaffordable to do that here locally. So, um, so I think maybe that might be part of the concern about A, the biological family coming into the picture um, mm -hmm. If they live in the United States and may be maybe the costs and the um, the processing difficulties. But as I said, we will work with every family to make sure that they have everything that they need to accept children into their homes if they would like to. This is really good to know. And I am really sorry. I see that we have a lot of people from other countries dialing in today. Oh. Uh, and we have Catherine Stevens, who I think is with your company, uh, your organization. 
She's the uh, amazing fundraiser that makes it possible for our children and families to have all the resources that we need. So I, we wouldn't be able to do anything that we do without her. Thank you, Catherine, for your work. It's much appreciated. Do you have any final words to say about what's going on in the war zone with regard to children? Well, again, that's that is going to really deeply impact um, children. And I'm I'm deeply worried about the trauma that they're going through and how it's going to impact them for the rest of their lives. We work with children who've who've been raised in trauma and we see how that impacts them going down um, for the rest of their lives. And if they don't have the opportunities to heal like they do here, um, what negative impacts it's going to make um, as adults. So I'm, I'm really praying and I'm hoping there's a quick resolution to this. And there may be a need at some point because of all of the casualties, again, to go there and adopt the children um, in that country as well, the Ukrainian children, because they may not have a homeland in, in the future and they, they may lose all of their family members. And I think that's um, just devastating for them. And I, I hope um, that we can resolve that together as a nation because Children don't deserve it, again, through no fault of their own. If, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this, but you know, I'm gonna do it anyway. If somebody wanted to make a donation to Walden family, they should, of course, vet you first, vet your organization first. And if that works, where would they send money, things, what, what they can to? Where would they send it to? Um, all of my contact information is uh, waldenfamily.org. Uh, they can contact me directly. Um, if they have any questions, they can donate online. They can see our wish list. Um, if they have, you know, a donor advised fund, there's a link to um, donate through that. If they want to send a check, it tells them exactly um, how to send a check. Um, or if they want to order things for us off of our um, Amazon wish list, they can do that. Yeah, so um, there are, there's lots of information. If they even want to become, if they're even even thinking about becoming a um, foster or adoptive parent, there's a form that they can fill out on there. And if there's no commitment whatsoever, they can just fill it out and somebody will call them and talk them through the process. And then they can make the decision if they want to move forward um, at that point. There's no commitment at all. And we understand that a lot of these decisions are deeply personal and that people need the time uh, and the information to think about that. And we're always here to answer any questions that people might have about any of those items. And are you on Amazon Smile? Yes, so we are. Absolutely. Oh, Walden Environment Inc. on Amazon Smile. And so that's W-A-L-D-E-N. And environment. And, and that was because we were named after David Thoreau's The Ideal Environment, Walden Pond, in which to raise a child. So our, um, our 501c3 name is Walden Environment, Inc. Okay. And that's on your website too? Yes. So for those of you who don't know about Amazon Smile, if you're ordering anything at any time on Amazon, and you want Amazon to donate money towards the amount that you purchase, I hope I'm explaining this yes. right, Yes. then Amazon will donate a specific amount of money to that 501c3 based upon how much money people spend on Amazon. And it's a wonderful way 
to for not-for-profits to be able to collect dollars while you're purchasing what you would like. Yes. So it's Amazon Smile, and a lot of people don't know that it exists. And it, it really does, you know, you don't think about how your uh, small purchase right. on Amazon makes a difference. But as my husband likes to say, oh, my God, you are just purchasing everything on Amazon. Every day he looks for the truck. So, um, yeah, think about it. And uh, definitely uh, explore that opportunity. Teresa, it's been a wonderful opportunity to get to know you and about the amazing, amazing work that your organization is oh, doing. Thank you, CV. Thank you. To know that there are people out there, organizations out there that care makes such a difference. We were just talking about how devastated San Francisco has become with people on the streets. And to yeah. know that you're doing something with children to help prevent that. Yeah. It just um, warms my heart. Thank you. And I hope that the people that I know can contribute to solving these crises with relationship to children. Thank you. Everybody, this has been a more serious presentation than what we normally do. All of the presentations that we do, you have an opportunity to learn along with me as I learn, and I love sharing learning. So please be sure to Look for us on Tuesday. And if you see an announcement come out on Tuesday that we are on at 12 o'clock and you don't see us, please tune back in. It means we're having technical problems. And if you miss it, please go to your podcast as well as YouTube and watch it. We're also on Facebook. Leave a comment. Let us hear from you. So everyone, goodbye. Teresa, thank you so much. Thank you, CB. And we'll see you next Tuesday for another spectacular guest. Bye now.